everyone, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me is Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm doing great. We're going to talk about a race that's coming up, but not the race that just went on. What is this? <laughs> do what, you remember we, a little show just, called Alt F1, Danny? I sure do, because they just, redesign, the they just redesigned Giant Bomb, and uh, I got an email asking about the podcast art for that, but I think Dan hit you <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, and also joining us is Mr. Rob Zachney. How are you, Robert? Uh, not too bad. Uh, I've been drinking and podcasting earlier in the day, okay. so I might not be at my uh, full lucidity, but I think I'm. I think I'm good to go. Okay. Oh, I like the idea of getting all. We're going to get like the unfiltered Rob Zachney, who are like he's going to really tell us what he thinks about uh, Fernando Alonso's behavior. <laughs> unfiltered. Distilled. You know who's underrated. <laughs> Pastor Maldonado. <laughs> Everyone was like, that guy's a joke, but Speaking actually he's one of the great drivers of the generation. Speaking of somebody who's probably drunk all the time. <laughs> Drove like it. <laughs> uh, that's right. We don't we don't have a race to talk about because we, we exhausted uh, ourselves talking about mm. the U.S. and the Mexican Grand Prix last time. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're here to catch everybody up on the news, uh, to catch everyone up on what is up with the Brazilian track uh and uh and take some emails and some questions and stuff so um let's let's just jump right into it shall we with the news uh we got a new track for 2020 Woo! good morning say it everyone to vietnam hanoi will be hosting uh the first ever vietnam grand prix in april of 2020 what a weird looking track i love it It's it's so weird it's like a Formula E track. It's like, shit, we ran out of city to drive around. Just go down this road and back again. We'll stick one of those weird spider cams on it. It'll be great. Uh, the, the, written by Bilbo Baggins. Go down yeah. this track and back again. You know what it looks like? It looks like a fidget spinner. Oh, my God. Mm. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. It's like three... They're not quite like equally distant parts, but it's like three things kind of splayed out. It looks like so uh, much stuff. It looks like a fidget spinner. It looks like a sort of any like sci-fi spaceship, just like where it's like, you know, there's like a long bit sticking out. I'm not sure if fidget spinners will still be in vogue in 2020, so <laughs> they might want to start selling Hanoi <laughs> fidget spinners today. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it's a dying market, but uh, yeah. Do you know anything else about the track? Is it is it, <clears throat> it's proposed? It's a street, is it, is it, it a street is. circuit? It is partially a street circuit. Okay. Uh, F1 has, um, they kind of did a media blast. They've got two different videos on their YouTube channel uh, and two different Is two a, a blast? It's, they got two articles. For Formula One, it is. Two okay. about the circuit and then two articles about the circuit. Okay. Um, it is a 22-turn track, which, you know, I think they're kind of being generous with what they're calling turns. Okay. Um, but it is 5.5. Five six. It's a five five six caliber track, or five five six kilometer track. What is that? In uh, uh, nope, that's not. I just you ever type in numbers? Um, nope. It's rather long by modern F one standards, right? Yeah, it is uh, three point four five miles. It does look long. It like it looks. It it looks like that that crazy straight i mean i don't even know what the, what the, where the crazy straight is because if you think about the there's like fucking five massive straights on this there's one that, yeah. that has like the straight it's kind of like um 
I'm trying to think. What's this? There's another circuit that has like a kink in the middle of the straight. It's effectively one, two. It's two straights, but it might as well be one straight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's definitely sort of like adding a bunch of meters onto the length of this track in a sort yeah, of yeah. Uh, so there's one straight that's 675 meters, one that's 800 meters, and one that is 1.5 kilometers. Is that is that longer than China? It must be. That this must be the new longest straight. I I don't think it's the longest. Oh, it's not. Uh, wow. Okay. No, but it's so there, it's their sector there. two is basically flat. Right, that's kind of what we're seeing here. Yeah. Is because there's a, there's a bend in it, but like that doesn't look looks like you're gonna be able to take that completely flat, uh, all the way from sort of this um, carousel type turn, uh, this roundabout type turn, all the way down to a hairpin that opens up uh, to the left. Uh, God, the speeds on that are gonna be wild, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they expect uh, in the speed trap 335 kilometers per hour or 208. Uh, miles per hour uh, at the end of God the street. Oh boy. Uh, apparently they consulted Mr. Herman Tilke. Of course they did. For, the uh, master. The design. And they've, <laughs> in the in the videos, you can see them trying to like graft other tracks turns onto this one. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I think is kind of an interesting idea to give you a sense of yeah. like what could happen possibly. But um, they're saying that turns one <laughs> and two are based on uh, the opening corners at Germany's Nürburgring. Uh, mm. Known as a red zone for overtaking, apparently, according to this. Uh, Your designated article. overtaking zone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> turns 12 and 12 through 15 may look familiar too. They have been inspired by a section of the famous Monaco Street Circuit. It's weird that they're saying they're based on and inspired by because you're kind of working with only so much here. There's part of this that already exists. And then I guess part of it, they're also building this currently swampland. So maybe they are actually just grafting some turns onto here. But uh, turns 16 Sport through... Sport gets greener by the day. <laughs> 16 through 19 it's, is uh, uh, reminiscent of the sweeping iconic S's at Suzuka. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or Maggots and Beckets or Circuit of the Americas. I feel like they stick that one in everywhere. That's like the new... Sure. If you have a new track, you need to put some goddamn S's in it. Um, I mean, they are fun. They are fun. Yeah. Like it is fun to see the cars sort of like the cars never look quite so nimble. Like if you want to see yeah. like why is an F one car special? Those complexes, I think, show off even to the layman what is unique about those cars because you can see the lean on the cars yeah. and the body roll and the speed they're sustaining. Uh, that said. Yes, we, we've seen this. We've seen this complex a little bit. Uh, turn one, I don't know, like these two roundabout style turns. Yeah. It sort of recaptures uh, one of my least favorite features of Sochi, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah, like totally. Those, it's too narrow to do anything with. Uh, my suspicion is that's going to be the case here, both of these turns. And yet it's making up a huge amount of the uh, cornering in the lab. Uh, I'm... I'm a little unconvinced by it. Uh, if if that hairpin at the end of uh, that back straight, that, that long flat out section, if they leave it a bit open, you could probably see some really cool moves uh, through mm. there. But if, like, it looks like they've got stadium sitting all up there. Yeah. If they crowd the track with that, I would bet you that hairpin ends up being too narrow to really facilitate a lot of the exciting stuff that you're hoping to see uh, at the end of a long, presumably DRS zone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah, it's weird. The Sochi, the Sochi's almost like my my one hope with the little 
roundabout section they have on this is that it's not as wide as Sochi's because Sochi's swings so far wide that it's it just it, it there's no like protecting on the inside for drivers. You're hoping that maybe this one is like tight enough that they, you know, or the apex rather isn't as you know drastic as as or as more drastic so that there's less like crowding. But yeah, I'm kind of with you on that. It's 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 a weird one to start with as well. I guess China does as well. And then just that that. You know, they have the other, they have the same thing at the end of the, like, I'd love to know what the idea is behind not having a hairpin at the bottom, like having this wide section. Is it just like a circuit Hermanos Rodriguez thing where it's like, you know what, we're going to stick people in this section. We might as well give them a couple of corners, like the arena section in the US Grand Prix, the section in the stadium in Mexico. And and now you have people presumably at the end of this long straight that are going to be away from the rest of the circuit. We we need to give them some drive time. We can't just have it be a... Uh, you know, a chicane or a, not a, a hairpin. We need to like give them a little bit of something, something. That's kind of what that little bit at the end looks like. But it's it's almost not enough down there. Like, and it, I don't know. I'll say this though: this thing looks weird. <laughs> and I can't. I can just. I know this is a podcast. I I cannot think of the words to explain how this looks. It it looks. I <laughs> so I don't have the me, vocabulary. To me, it looks like an archery bow. Uh, hmm. with like yes. a vacuum cleaner stuck on the front of it. <laughs> um, but I think what's what what I do like about it is that I think the wrap on uh, Tilka, deservedly so, is that a lot of his courses felt very cookie cutter. Uh, mm. They lacked any sort of distinguishing characteristics. They were very conservative. Uh, this thing is goofy. Yeah. And it might not be a successful Goofy, but I'm also staring at it, and it's like the most extremes of China, uh, but also it's doing kind of its own thing. And hopefully, hopefully, all that speed, the course length, gives some space for exciting racing action uh, and not, you know, the processional that right. so many of Tilka's tracks uh, in the early 2000s kind of threw up again and again the, the the only thing that looked that i can describe at all is that that weird roundabout section before and after the the long straight that definitely looks like a penis that whole part <laughs> looks like a penis this so so if you're if you're if you're wondering if you're a man and you're wondering what the track looks like just take your pants <laughs> off and look down and that gives you an indication of at least one sector of the track <laughs> Uh, Rob, I have good news for you. According to Formula1.com, what's certain is that fans attending should be treated to plenty of action, not a procession. They're never wrong about that. That's right. <laughs> so, rest assured. Uh, yes, April April 2020. There's also, they're My- doing some kind of, like, raffle so you can win two the very first two tickets uh, on Formula1 the website. So. They're, stand- they're standing tickets, probably. Real question, like, is there an audience for this? Like, because one of the things with a lot of new venues for F1 is it's kind of an attempt to astroturf a fan base into existence. And I am very curious whether or not there's going to be any sort of organic following for this thing or whether it's going to be, uh, I mean, sort of my gold standard for dismal F1 venues is Korea. Hmm. Um, Right. Like, is this going to be another Korea, right? Where it's a massive, still under construction facility that they are racing on that nobody cares about and is clearly like more about the prestige of having a Grand Prix 
than it is giving people anything they actually want to say. The one thing that I wonder about, Hanoi is like a, a pretty big city. It's like 8 million people. But I, in my head, I feel like there's a decent expat community there. Um, so I'm wondering if that's going to drive it in any way. Or I guess how close it is to the city is important too because they often say it's in Hanoi, but then it ends up being like, you know, Austin is... You know, you can almost hit it from the from with a stone from from the city. Whereas, like in China, for instance, that circuit is in the middle of fucking nowhere, and that was a massive problem they had. Um, I'd be interested so, if anyone we're listening to live has, lives in Vietnam, or I guess you have you been to Vietnam, haven't you, Drew? Uh, I have, yeah. Uh, and and from the video they showed on their YouTube channel, it looks so they have uh, they have a, <laughs> one of their correspondents going around in a tuk tuk, uh, of on the of streets. Course, yeah. Yeah, they dress um, like Robin it, Williams and say in Viet fucking Nam and sucky sucky five dollar. Like, <sighs> come on. No, it's it didn't feel gross to me. Um, I'll, you know, I'm not Vietnamese, but whatever. Uh, right. It, uh, you know, it, it looks like it's in more of a commercial district of Hanoi, but it doesn't look okay. like it's out in the boonies. Cool. Um, so it looks it looks like the city. Uh, I'd be and, really you know, interested in going to this city. one. Yeah. This, this 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 to me feels like a really exciting destination F1 in the way that like I think Europeans feel about the American one. Americans probably feel about a lot of the European ones as well. Um, for some reason, I've just I'm like I wasn't interested in going to China at all, and kind of interested about down in Australia or like Suzuka, kind of. But like this to me would be or Singapore is actually the one I would have really loved to have gone to. So this kind of feels cool like that. Like oh, I might like look up you know how expensive it is to go to Hanoi or where to and, and tack this thing on. This kind of seems like a fun one. So I don't know yeah, maybe it'll be I, popular that way. Vietnam is a cool place. Uh, ha Long Bay, which is a, a big uh, tourist attraction, is uh, quite close to Hanoi. It's in the north okay. of the country. Um, and then halfway down the country is uh, my personal favorite um hoi an uh, which is like this cool mm. little beach town so you could definitely make a, a destination trip of of this Sweet. um intriguingly this i'm quoting from the article again the pit lane also misses out on the first and last corners which wow. should reduce the amount of time it takes to complete a pit stop and therefore make a multi-stop strategy more enticing and viable Interesting. They've done yeah. that now with a couple of the new tracks. America, you missed the last turn. Uh, yeah, in uh, Abu Dhabi, you of course missed the first two turns. A lot yeah. depends on uh, what they do with tire compounds, doesn't it? Hmm. It it also right. d- depends on if they can finish in time. None of this is oh, built, yeah. uh, except for well, I guess half of it is street. But um, yeah, I don't cool. know. It'll be weird. I always and feel it weird good. when they do the, the, the half street, half circuit tracks, because then presumably it's not earning that much money the rest of the... I guess maybe the circuit part they're able to lock off and they can do a bit of an arena thing, but is that is that what the straight is? Is that what the... Is the circuit... Is the, the street part one of the straights? Yeah, that a would lot make of the sense. straights okay. are, are streets. So, so then, then there's the, a smaller the arena. Is, yeah, yeah uh, is the, cool. uh, the Swampland. And I think I, I want to say that I saw that this is all um, private investment which is interesting because uh, Vietnam is super duper socialist. So maybe it's, or maybe that's not a right. surprise. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, also there is rumors that uh, Zandvoort in uh, the Netherlands is also Ooh. going to be on board for 2020. That is a although great fucking track. We have not had any confirmation of that. I don't remember that track. Can you, do you remember much about it? Um, Rob? So I mostly remember it from a uh, race. seven. Like, okay. it hasn't been an F1 track in ages, and uh, mostly what I think what it's infamous for is some 
truly ghastly crashes uh, back in the battle days. But Zandvoort is uh, a really good, uh, demanding, fast track with some, like, really edgy-feeling straights. Like, if I remember correctly, like, one of the major sweeping straights is almost up on a berm. It's Holland, right? So, like, there's a lot of, like, Causeway-esque, you know, sections. But it's like there's a fast section that... It feels like if you wobble off the track, like you're going to be in some trouble really quickly because uh, there's there's not a ton of space. It feels very edgy, and then there's a lot of really demanding, uh, you know, tight sections uh, where you can sort of make up a lot of time. And if you're good on tires, uh, you can really change the the complexion of a race. Um, this this is cool. Is, I've been sorry, just looking at it here. Yeah, it looks it, it. Yeah, just looking at pictures of it and, and the circuit layout, it looks like a brand's hatch or something, like a sort of a old school like touring car. I guess DTM yes. races on this, does it? So like that that type of thing. That's that's kind of rad. It also seems to have like a, a like like Spa has the sort of like the extended version that no one ever uses. It seems to have that as well on here. I'm not sure if that that's what they'd use for F1 or not. That's cool, huh? Yeah. So. Who, who will say? I think rumors were, were uh, coming out for both of those tracks at the same time, and uh, so far Vietnam's the only one we've gotten confirmation on. But uh, yeah, more more tracks, more better. More better. Uh, so that's all I got on Vietnam. Um, I wanted to weigh in, uh, or uh, I did not want to weigh in. I wanted to um, have Danny weigh in on uh, what you think, Danny, on the W Series. We've got some more quotes here oh, from, yeah. uh, from women. Uh, notably Simona Di Silvestro, <clears throat> who's a current Australian supercars driver, uh, a former, former Indy and Formula E driver, and also did some testing for Sauber. Uh, she says, I think personally it would have been better to do something like a Red Bull program and make sure some girls get an opportunity on a really good team. Uh, I guess we should reset. W Series is a uh, proposed, um, or not proposed, it's happening, a women's only uh, racing series that will start uh, in, I think, May of 2019. Um, and uh, there's been some, uh, you know, different differing opinion on whether this is a good idea or a, or a bad idea. Um, this is from an article on motorsport.com. De Silvestro reckons her deal to race a Michael Shank racing run Acura at next year's Rolex 24 alongside uh, Catherine Legg and uh, Anna Beatrice is a perfect example of how to structure a program aimed at female drivers. Quote, what we've been able to do at, with the IMSA deal uh, at Shank Racing, the lineup we have is very strong. I know Catherine and Anna really well, and they are proven winners in junior series. Maybe it will show that the people who have the guts to give women a proper opportunity, that that's the way to do it. So I think mm. a lot of this, um, her, her Simona's uh, um, real point is that it all comes down to funding. And if you're going to put a lot of money into making a whole separate series, why not put that funding uh, into specific drivers instead. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, to be honest, I am doing a lot of just sort of listening at the moment on this one. Yes. Like I, 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 I feel like you know there is a there is a, a general air of sort of like positivity when we see you know anything going on in terms of allowing 
women a like a good platform within anything that has been dominated by men historically there definitely seems to be a lot of sort of nuance in the execution of this that some drivers are coming down on the side of you know what it's like good Uh, female drivers i'm talking about it's good but like i wish they did it this way and other ones largely ones who were involved in the series perhaps already are being very vocal about how good this this thing is um i i feel like i'm not you know in the position to uh to be able to weigh in in any sort of personal way just by, by nature <laughs> and to of the be fact frank that, none of us are <laughs> right um and and also in terms of the specifics i'm like i've I felt like a, i've spent I've, i'm still trying to parse what exactly it is around this that people are a little bit hesitant of like i get the idea that you know you don't you also don't want to sort of like create a special separate you know not as good not as much funding thing over here um that's like sort of alienating women but also then there's the flip side of that coin the devil's advocate is we're talking about this and a lot of people are talking about this then you know how long does that last x y and z so i don't know we'll have to we'll have to see if 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 this ends up being a platform that gets more women drivers into other things then that's good uh if if you know into other series and um, if it has restrictions like if it's not adding to like points on licenses and stuff like that and that's that's obviously a problem it might be a waste for some drivers um but yeah generally i'm i'm just kind of like waiting it out and and in, i'm in, i'm interested in how everyone's reacting to it um and i think the closer we get to the actual races the more sort of clarity we might uh, get on that did you guys talk about it when i wasn't on the podcast because i'd love uh, to know what rob thinks about it yeah it was, it was two i think two or three episodes ago uh right before yeah. you came back um yeah yeah i mean it's nobody solved this problem like the analogy i used is this reminds me of some debates that are ongoing in esports as well you've got a competitive field that there's no there is no reason, there's no justification why you should see such gender disparity in terms of uh, people competing at the highest level or anywhere near uh, the, hi- the highest level. And yet you see it. Uh, and esports, I think, has adopted a couple different solutions. Uh, in like Counter-Strike, for instance, there's always been sort of a well-regarded women's Counter-Strike scene, scene, which has thrown up some really great competitions. But nevertheless, it is seen also as kind of a lesser than uh, series. Like, it doesn't have the following. But the way I see that conversation unfolding again and again in that space is this idea that, well, what we need to do is just create more encouragement and opportunity and financing within the current system so that more women can advance to the highest level in the status in the current status quo and then we don't need this uh like second tier or second class uh Mm -hmm. competition uh platform and i'm sympathetic to that uh and i think there's a lot of I, i think there's a lot of good reasons to take that position i think there's uh, a lot of competitors who like quite justly feel that they don't they shouldn't be relegated to some kind of like women only they, they want to compete with the best hmm. whoever that may be and that means competing in uh whatever's agreed to be the highest tier so in motorsports is f1 uh etc but then you come back to the fact that man if small like if small tweaks and encouragement and small changes to the status quo were going to get the job done, we'd have seen that by now, right? right? 
and we just haven't. And so I kind of, I think something needs to change, right? And maybe if this takes off and there's a generation of like really talented and popular, uh, you know, uh, racing drivers who, you know, have, have gotten a following and maybe get promoted into uh, more main, like what we consider like mainstream racing, maybe there won't be a need. Uh, right. for for the W series. But at the moment, I look at this and I I think I do see a need. I think I see a lot of opportunity uh that could be generated by that uh rather than the well we'll get around to diversity at some point in the far distant future uh right. when the meritocracy does its thing that we see. That, and that, you t- totally and I think that I think like you do have I think I like I'm not to t- totally generalize, but I feel like people who are sort of involved in F1 are more likely to believe in that sort of like meritocracy fantasy. You know that that that, that like you know especially like people in F1 are really proud of the fact that like we've there have been drivers like Lewis Hamilton who maybe didn't grow up like billionaires you know like middle class people could be f1 drivers and you know Ayrton Senna is from Brazil even though he was like from a wealthy family or whatever but like there's like this this idea of the like you know you can come from anywhere and, and get into a car um w- what I reminds me of um as an Arsenal fan uh we have an incredible women's football team um and also uh as Americans you guys uh have an incredible uh uh, women's national team and the reason a lot of that stuff happened is because of investment by male dominated uh, either associations and football clubs and then just time like that representation trickles down and when young girls like we saw it we had that email right a couple of weeks back where the one of our listeners was watching the race and his daughter saw one of the pit crew and was like oh you can be an engineer on an f1 team if you're a woman and it's like when you know, I'm totally sure that between USA 94 and between the sort of dominance of that um, uh, women's uh, soccer team in the States on the international stage back in that era during the 90s as well, like, that's why you have such a dominant team now. And the reason why Arsenal did is as all this money got funded, like, there are a couple of teams that took it really seriously and and they basically dominate women's football in England now. Um, so, like... I, I personally, my sort of liberal ble- bleeding heart thinks that way that you do need to be proactive about this sort of stuff. But I'm also, you know, not willing to brush aside the uh, the uh, I don't know thoughts about this by impassioned women within the scene as well. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I feel like something's better than nothing, right? Like doing something, even if it doesn't work, it it creates you know movement within the space. Like even doing something bad it pushes back in another way and i feel like just you know enabling the status quo and being fine with how everything's going like either way i'm not much of a fan of that so i'm gonna be watching it i'm looking forward to it Uh, i've got one more quote here from uh, tatiana calderon who um uh, just did her first sauber test or it was a uh, a media day but it was her first time in the sauber f1 car she is uh, currently part of their uh test uh she is their test driver she's I don't know. I was always, always, always confused between test driver and uh, like reserve driver. I don't, I don't right. know which she is, but um, she says, uh, I only want to race against the best regardless of gender. Obviously, this new series is happening, and I think it will be helpful for some of the girls that are struggling with budgets or want to start to prepare to get competitive against the boys. In that sense, we need to also thank the organization uh, if they're doing the effort. You can't really be against somebody that wants to promote motorsport and female participation. But my view is that we can compete on equal terms. Uh, Adam Stern, motorsports reporter of Sports Business Journal, 
is reporting that W Series has had more than 100 female drivers apply for the 18, wow. 18 slots, uh, including Americans. Um, and the W Series wants a race in the U.S. Uh, in 2020 and will likely partner with another series for that, suggesting IndyCar may uh, be that partner. So uh, they're looking long term. Um, uh, by the way, that those figures are from the CEO of uh, W Series, um, uh, a Miss Bond Muir. Don't remember her first name. Uh, James James Bond Muir. <laughs> <laughs> Jane, sorry. Uh, yes. So uh, I'm I'm interested to see <laughs> how this all shakes out, uh, as I'm sure Catherine Bond Muir, as I'm sure the rest of the motorsports community is uh, as well. Um, moving on, Jimmy Johnson and Alonzo, Fernando Alonzo, that is, uh, will swap cars. Jimmy Johnson is a NASCAR man. He's going to, Alonzo's going to drive a NASCAR in F1. Jimmy Johnson's going to drive an F1 tracker and it's, it's what we've always wanted. Yes. Uh, in a teaser video, this from motorsport.com in a teaser video released Friday, Alonzo 37 and Johnson announced why didn't you put Johnson's age? Uh, that they would be taking part in a day-long... Oh, I think he's 45. Uh, That's In a day-long why. car swap in uh, Bahrain on November 26th, one day after the uh, 2018 F1 season finale at Abu Dhabi. Uh, Johnson will visit McLaren headquarters in London and spend hours in its F1 simulator before joining Alonso at Abu Dhabi for the F1 season finale, uh, which I guess... I guess that means that Fernando Alonso will just hop into a NASCAR because they didn't say anything about uh, any simulator work for that. This is like the disappointing version of the Lewis Hamilton, Tony Stewart uh, swap (laughs) they did at uh, Watkins Glen a few years back where it was like, that was kind of a legit cool thing uh, where they both sort of started to appreciate the ins and outs of uh, each other's cars. And also it was kind of, funny just seeing tony stewart kind of realize like the difference in performance between a formula one car and like what he's used to driving around in uh but these are not the announcements we want about alonzo's future no no put him in a cool racing series it's yeah. it's it's it, I'm I'm kind of done. I feel like with all of the uh, with all of these like, driver swap kind of things. What I what I'm kind of interested in looking in now is is swapping drivers with people in other professions. Like let's get Danny Ricardo and Corey Taylor from Slipknot to to do it. Like a because <laughs> Danny's great. We know he's good at singing. Yep. I think he probably holds his own. And I'd be interested in uh you know Corey getting behind that F1 car and 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 screaming screaming down the track. <laughs> The cool ones to me are when uh, uh, MotoGP drivers, yeah, swap. That's uh, cool. Yeah, I want MotoGP drivers and horse riders to swap. Yes, there mm. you go. Put a jockey in an F1 car. Oh, we go exactly. so fast because they're so light. <laughs> That'd be a bad thing. Maybe there wouldn't be enough downforce, and the car would fucking flip. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, that's all I got for news. Uh, I guess I do have uh, Grosjean um, or Haas appealed Grosjean's disqualification in Monza, but it was up, up, upheld by the FIA appeal court. So uh, no news there. <laughs> what's, the, what's the worst thing that can happen then? I guess if he gets another slap on the wrist in Brazil, that'll be his last race of the season. That's where uh, he is now. I think so. The way that those points work is that they are on a 12-month period, so they kind of rotate. And I think mm. his... Oldest ones have now disappeared, so I think he can he can still get a few more. Right, he's not on probation quite yet. Right, 
Uh, But speaking of the next race, why don't we hop right in to a track walk, Danny, for Brazil. Brazil. Let's do it. We're heading back to Interlagos, as we like to call it, although officially known as Autodromo Jose. Oh, no, sorry, Jose, because it's Brazil. Jose Carlos. I can never say. Is it Pache? I think it's I think it's Pat, yeah. I always remember that Brazilian Portuguese or Portuguese in general is you, you pronounce it the way people pronounce Spanish things wrong. So you don't say Jose, you say Jose. And you Are don't you sure? say Pace. You don't say Pat, you say Pace. I think so, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. Okay. Well, I guess I'm sure if I'm not, we'll get um, you know, f1.cool slash emails yeah. uh, for our correction section. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, what to say about Interlagos? It's, it's been a mainstay since the early 70s. The Brazilian Grand Prix has been around since World War II, but we've had it there um, for the longest time. And it's kind of like despite the fact that all of its 15 turns I feel like I've seen an overtake on at least uh, at least one overtake on practically all of them um, because of its sort of uh, late uh, you know uh, spot in the running order in F1 it's been this kind of incredible place for for F1 moments like many of the current drivers won their championships there because it it used to be the final race of the season until Abu Dhabi swung in it spent most of its time um, I think at one stage it was closer to the start of the season but it spent most of its modern era at least um, if not the last track of the season then close to it Uh, Alonso won his first championship here Hamilton famously lost his first season uh, to Kimi Raikkonen who won his championship here then won it the next year in dramatic fashion in 08 um, on the last turn Um, Jensen Button won his championship here um, we had in recent amount of time we had Massa having hit what we thought then was his final race of the season crashing on the start finish straight and him crying and everyone else in the stands crying um, we had Nelson Piquet collapsing on the, the podium we had Ayrton Senna finally getting the monkey off his back and winning a Brazilian Grand Prix um, uh, with I think like two gears on the car or something and he uh, similar to PK uh, had to be carried to the, the, the trophy ceremony you could barely lift it up so it's it's one of these just amazing circuits that you know it, it's also one that could never have been made today it's, it's in the middle of the city of Sao Paulo it's a weird like it's it's I think like a there if not a thousand meters above sea level it's like it's pretty high and it's built into this weird bowl so it's got loads of topographical change and it's almost as if they tried to cram the circuit into this like spot so they just kept putting turns in that little arena section <laughs> and it curls around this is the track that looks do you guys have scale electrics here in mm-hmm. the states yeah this is the track that looks like one of those it looks like a scale electrics track because it's fast it's windy and it's the lap is over before you know it it's one of the shortest laps in the f1 series also um, called slot cars by the way slot cars yeah exactly one of those things um and yeah there's been overtakes practically all over it and i like to talk a lot about the sort of the visual identity of these tracks and the ones that like you know that's monaco within two seconds of watching it even if you're not an f1 fan and then there's some tracks you know the ones that we kind of got in the 90s and the early aughts that a lot of them kind of look similar and you're not really sure is that is that china or is that is that one some other one and this is one of these ones that just like you know it's interlagos like the the how close the, the stands are to the drivers and the ways the turns are and and the camera angles and all that sort of stuff so um i'm not even gonna bother talking about a specific turn on it like every single turn on this track i feel like has had overtaking opportunities in it um and 
top to bottom. It's one of my favorite tracks. I love it. There's been just madness uh, all over it. There's places crashes out. You often get rain. Grip is wavy, wavy, um, and you know it's got a big dirty uh, start finish straight as well with a with a, a couple of tight corners coming up to it where people can really close the gap. So. Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, Interlagos in a nutshell. It's it's a good lot of fun. It's almost a shame it always comes now at the end of the season when the championship is over. But um, you know maybe they should knock it back a couple of races and we'll have some fun little endings again. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a super track and I cannot wait to see it this weekend. Yeah, uh, Rob, are you a fan? Oh yeah, um, I like. I'm sorry with Dan with Danny it's it's a classic track it is uh incredibly distinctive for me the thing I think I love the most about it is after you conclude uh that sort of back half of the circuit where it sort of turns in on itself and there's a really uh it feels very go-karty almost mm-hmm. in the way you're sort of wending and winding your way through that back sector uh the way the track slowly opens itself back up to you in this long like it's a series of like dog leg turns uh <laughs> but you just keep going faster and faster and i think it starts to even like bank a little bit as you mm-hmm. as you come uh around onto the start finish straight and that makes for such great moments um i just i i, I love that i love that layout i love that that final sector um and it's I think it's good in the calendar. Where, like, I would, I would, I actually probably still prefer the the season to end there, uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I think mostly what this what this circuit deserves is a more competitive F one field, uh, right? Like, <laughs> there should be there should this is a this is a circuit uh, that if there are still stakes left to play for, what an arena for a yeah. final contest as we've seen, uh, but. You know, just in the last with the Red Bull eras and then the uh, Mercedes eras, eras we haven't quite had the high stakes duels uh, that maybe the circuit deserves. Yeah, well said. I think use of the word arena as well is perfect because many of these tracks, and we were just talking about the new one that they're looking at in Hanoi, they do feel like these sort of wide open thing, these these big expansive networks of road that they just have, you know, little bits where you can watch, you know, stuck to the side of them. Interlagos feels like a soccer field. It feels like the stadium is built around it. That like That's you were cool. from you know from all angles, there are people. Um, uh, checking it out um and uh yeah to, to rob's point that ending section is it, it 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 does something that like not all tracks do and when you watch this race you're like you're right that's the way an f1 lap should end it's just this crescendo at the end of the lap where it just like rises up and opens up and the stands are there and that's not the case in every f1 track like there are plenty of tracks that just kind of whimper right there's a tight little right-hander 90 degrees and then you drive straight whereas this one's just like building yeah. uh, to this crescendo and it's uh yeah that's that's a very good point um, um uh, I, I really like that about this track that uh, last turn is also pretty tricky it's got a lot of bumps and weird stuff in it and yeah that's massa happened. crashed on it that's where the, you know yeah. he crashed on it. that's a, it's a straight right and he that's where he went yeah, uh, Max Verstappen famously had an amazing save in the rain. Oh, uh, yeah. I think coming off of that turn, um, his whole 2016 race was absolutely incredible. That that's where I, uh, you know, realized that oh man, this kid's for real. Hmm. Um, I got some stats here uh, for the top uh, top teams. Um, Mercedes has gotten pole for the last four years. 
Uh, although uh, Sebastian Vettel won uh, last year, uh, the first non-Mercedes runner since Vettel's victory for Red Bull in 2013. Um, victory here for Lewis Hamilton would mark his 50th in Formula One's hybrid era. Uh, Mercedes need to lead just 16 laps to make it into the 5,000 laps led club. Only the fifth team ever to achieve that. Mm. Uh, and Lewis Hamilton has only qualified his uh, over his teammate once here when he beat Rosberg uh, in 2016. So maybe look for Botas to, uh, to shine. Uh, Sebastian Vettel leading for 11 laps would see him clinch Michael Schumacher's record for laps led at Interlagos, currently at 236. Uh, and seven laps led for either Vettel or Raikkonen will give Ferrari the record for most laps led by a constructor at Interlagos, currently held by McLaren. Red Bull, though, uh, in qualifying since 2014, they have only had a car that was third fastest or less. Uh, the team uh, tending to be out horsepowered up the hill and onto the start-finish straight, and then out horsepowered again in the long drag from turns three to four. Uh, since 2014, Red Bull has led a total of zero laps at Interlagos. Wow. Um, it is also a track that is particularly hard on tires. I think there's a lot of banking, uh, and it's a pretty old track as well. Um, we've, we're taking the medium soft and super soft tires there. Um, yeah, a lot of lateral force, a lot of down force, uh, 71 laps. Uh, it's also counterclockwise or anti-clockwise. Uh, and Grosjean says that, uh, it is, that makes it super difficult on the neck. Um, as you mentioned, Danny, we are going to get uh, high percentages, uh, relatively, I guess, uh, of precipitation mm. for the qualifying session. It looks to be about 35, uh, and the race uh, in the mid-40% for rain. Yes, very exciting. Uh, temperatures- there's only one thing better than rain, and that's maybe rain, or in you know, rain <laughs> that comes and goes. Yes. Like nothing's better than them having to dance with that. And we don't, there's not too many tracks where we get that. Spa's the one where you get that little bit of, oh, it's raining at the backyard, but not in the front yard. Um, so hopefully, you know, Interlagos, you get some of those clouds that come over, dump, and then disappear again. That'd be great if we got some this weekend. I, I want to say that this is one of those tracks that is similar to Spa and that it's kind of microclimate Like it's just very unpredictable and strange. Yeah. Uh, temperatures look to be about mid seventies Fahrenheit or, uh, mid twenties in Celsius, uh, yeah, rising a little bit, um, from qualifying to the race, uh, and winds about, uh, maybe getting up to, let's see, five mile an hour on race day. Yeah. A little bit faster on qualifying, but yes, the rain is, that's really what, that's really what we're looking for. Um, driver standings, uh, Lewis Hamilton has clinched the uh, championship, of course, uh, Sebastian Vettel in second, uh, Kimi Raikkonen in third, although Valtteri Bottas is right behind him. Uh, Kimi's got 236, Valtteri's got 227. Verstappen with uh, 216 in fourth place, behind him Danny Rick with 146. Uh, Hulkenberg has 69, Perez has 57, Magnussen with 53, and Alonso in 10th with 50. Right behind him, Esteban Ocon with 49, Sainz has 45, Grosjean with 31, Gasly with 29, Leclerc has 27, uh, then we got Van Dorn in 16th with 12, Erickson has 9, Stroll has 6, Hartley has 4, and Sergei Sirotkin has 1 point. Uh, the Constructors' Championship is not over yet. Mercedes has 585, Ferrari with 530, uh, Red Bull in 3rd place with 362, Renault has 114, Gene Haas and team have 84 points. 
McLaren has 62. Force India with 47. Sauber has 36. Scuderia Toro Rosso has 33 points. Uh, and Williams has seven. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> I, it's, and it's gonna. That's probably gonna stay that way. Yeah, maybe. Uh, there's uh, an interview with Claire Williams on the uh, F1 Beyond the Grid podcast that I haven't listened to yet, but uh, that should hmm. be a very interesting one. Uh, if it's anything like the Williams documentary, uh, which is quite good. Uh, in the fantasy standings, uh, if you like, you can join us for the last two races of the official uh, Formula One season on um, the Shift F1 fantasy group. You can join us with the invite code 0B62FE, which we'll put in the show notes as well. Uh, the current top 10 are Speedy McCready's, Bobby Gondo Racing. Uh, I've said all these names very <laughs> a lot of times before, but... They're dominant. Uh, they're dominant. They're <laughs> still holding it down. Uh, made in Haas. Orange B-King F1, Renault You Didn't, Blue Doze nice. Elite, Scuderia Matteo, David Coulthard's Chin, Phil F1, and Trendsetters. I am all the way down in 136th place. Uh, let's take it to some emails, shall we? Emails. Emails, uh, f1.cool slash emails uh, to get an email sent right to our inbox. Uh, this one comes in from James. Hey, Drew, Danny, and Rob, I feel like we have seen strategy decisions play a big role in determining race winners this year. Do you guys agree? I think that Mercedes and Ferrari being so close on pace for so much of the season has really highlighted when one of them doesn't make the right calls on the pit wall, as we just saw with Mercedes at Cota. Uh, Loving the DDR lineup for Shift F1. Keep up the great (laughs) podcasting. Who's first? Go for it, Rob. Uh... I think F1 in the modern era is a mix of strategy and racecraft. Uh, and that balance shifts from year to year. I don't think we've ever gone as far as like the early 2000s where between fueling and tire strategy, like so much of the race was dictated by decisions on the pit wall that the driver's job largely became executing on those strategy decisions and driving like like driving within the boundaries uh, that were laid out by that strategy, which there was some great racing back in that era, but that felt very dominated by strategic decisions. Uh, I think the pace has been close between Ferrari and uh, Mercedes, but I also think that what's the way to put this? I think it's been very easy for the drivers involved to point at strategy decisions for why things are going wrong. And I think in so, I think sometimes it is maybe a bit of an escape from facing some other like mistakes that may have been, may have been made. Uh, right. Like it's very easy to say, how did this happen when you didn't take care of the tires? Right. Or you didn't, yeah. you just didn't get the laps done that you needed to hold that margin. Like that's a strategy call, but also there's a lot of times where Ferrari and Mercedes have both had to say you need like it's hammer time, right? Whether you're Hamilton or not, this is where you need to perform. <laughs> hasn't that, that, that performance hasn't always arrived. Yeah. It sometimes think- feels to me like, uh, oh, sorry, Danny. Now, I, I, just to, uh, on the end of that point, the I feel like the modern era of F1 viewership is, is uh, like many sports, is very, very data-driven. So what sort of rises to the surface for us a lot is 
you know, time gaps and stuff like that. So now, like, we're so super conscious of undercuts and undercut, undercuts and overcuts now as a viewer that, like, even the commentators are totting the numbers up while you're watching the race and being like, you know what, I think they should have, you know, they've got, anal- we've got analysts now. We've got Paul DeResta and his fucking calculator in the background <laughs> telling you, you know, what's, you know, if, if, if they should have gone or not. I mean, in the race that Kimi recently run, uh, won, they were talking about how Ferrari had messed up the call, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that was the narrative until, you know, 10 laps later and they realized Lewis had burnt out his tires. And the problem is we don't have a way in in sort of hum- in, a, in the way in which we, we communicate to be able to look at the tire problem. The tire problem is happening in the car and the engineers know about it because they can see the heat and the driver knows about it and we have all the data about you know, the, the how good it should work under certain temperatures. But that's not rising to the surface during the race. All we see is the time deltas. So I feel like that element of the race is kind of uh, a little bit more obfuscated. And the Kimi situation, I think, is a good example of how, you know, that element of it is an important part, but we don't see it. So I feel like the sort of the postscript on a lot of racing nowadays is... We we the highlight the the headlines tend to highlight on the strategy of oh they should have pulled them in there or they did this or did that, but it's like there's more going on, but it's just not getting as much sort of like visibility. I feel. Yeah, I think you know strategy certainly has decided uh, races. Um, you know, good strategy and bad strategy. But uh, sometimes when we are critical of uh, you know a move or whatever, it can feel a little to me like blaming the last batter to strike out you know it's not like yeah he could have hit a home run and won the game but the uh, the rest of the team could have done better throughout the game right so um i i think where a special case you have to carve out for this is where these decisions become decisive is when something unexpected happens like the full course caution and the team has literally maybe the time it takes the cir- the cars to get around the circuit to figure out how like whether or not this changes the plan or not uh those are cases where that can absolutely like turn a race or throw someone's race away if you sometimes you're just unlucky and you there would have been a perfect pit window and you didn't you missed it because you didn't know uh that verstappen was going to take somebody out or or, or something uh but the other thing i the other thing i would say is um there are oddities to way some of these t- the the way some of these tires wear. Like a thing I think about a lot is, I think yellow striped soft tire was kind of a wild card tire this entire season, particularly if you were driving a Mercedes uh, Ferrari. And there are some tires that just behave oddly, and it never felt like uh, some teams ever dialed in a predictable. Like you want tires to have nice predictable degradation and performance drop and some of these tires just felt like man you'd put them on and there was just a devil in them yeah (laughs) yeah uh that's and that's a good point it's like you know when like the data is great the the world of data analysis is amazing because it lets us know so much and then doesn't leave it let us know too much sometimes like but i I, you know if they were all stuck on those tires it'd be great but then you can just sort of avoid the 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 um the you know consistency is a really important part in F one but you know it's also the type of thing where the the rules and the way the sport set up is you need to like push away from it because you don't want twenty on prost driving around the track all year you know it just wouldn't be as much fun 
Speaking of uh, data, I wanted to uh, jump down to shout outs and give them to Nick, uh, who wrote in via email, and Devin, who wrote in on Twitter, for sending us uh, this amazing video where they uh, someone um, put uh, modern graphics on old F1 races. It's oh, so wow. good. Yeah. Uh, with we'll like with shoulder. like split times and stuff. Uh, it, they just or? like they put the you know the 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 tower of names over on the left, and then uh, you know uh, the red flag happens, and like yeah, deltas and stuff. Uh, it's, do they it's do the cool. uh, do they do the weird uh, like fucking Jordi LaForge headband graphic? <laughs> for the- I don't think that's in there. <laughs> Good, look pretty out of place probably. Also, thanks to everyone who sent us the uh, the Circuit of the Americas Niao guy. Oh that yeah, was really good. <laughs> uh, I retweeted it from the the Shift F One account, but yeah, they found the guy. Like he vil- he filmed himself. He's on the tower of the Circuit of the Americas, and he's yelling into uh, the microphone that is up there. I don't know why they put a microphone up there. The, yeah, they just I never imagined that there'd just be a mic at like like eye level yeah. with the people on the tower like that is the like Can I tell, you know what fucking happened there whoever was sent up the engineer who was sent up to stick that mic up there was like scared of heights and by the time <laughs> they got up there they were just like you know what fuck it that's i'm putting the right i'm not zip tie this on a, to the railing yeah i'm not standing on a ladder like <laughs> that, that's all, that's enough uh a uh, couple more emails here this one from eddie <clears throat> says hey gents Went to my first F1 race in Austin last week, and y'all's pod was incredibly helpful for someone with almost no knowledge of F1. Thanks to y'all for informing me of uh, Ricardo's American accent bit. He was the obvious go-to for my favorite driver. Sadly, he went down early with a DNF. I'm watching the Mexico GP right now, and Ricardo, who had the pole and was running, running a great race in second late, had his car shut down and picks up another DNF. Apparently his eighth of the season. How is that possible? I mean, Rex would be one thing, but these are some pretty fancy and expensive race cars. How does one dude have his car keep dying like that? Thanks for the fun. Uh, looking forward to getting more into these good, good, fast cars. Uh, I would say, I, I think it only looks weird when um, uh, no one else is, I mean, I say no one, but people aren't having as bad of luck as Ricardo, but this kind of stuff used to happen in Formula One. I mean, correct me if I'm Rob, wrong, Rob, but all the time, um, like it was guaranteed that you would lose like a quarter of the field for every race. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the, hard to swallow. The shift toward like engine reliability wasn't a priority in F1 for ages, right? Like, I mean, back in the '80s, what they had the quali engines, where like literally it was a a uh, hot lap tuned engine that had like three laps in it before it exploded. Like literally <laughs> that thing, like you had your out lap, you had your hot lap and your cool down. And then that thing, if you tried to drive it a fourth lap was probably just going to come undone. Like it could, it just wasn't safe to, to, to push beyond that. Uh, those days are gone and they're asking these, uh, now Ricardo's had ungodly luck. Uh, but there's a couple things to bear in mind. Um, these aren't really car engines anymore. Like mm. we call them power units because they're actually like synthesizing a lot of different like power sources and energy sources from within the car. And they're much more complicated than just about any engine you find in most cars, maybe outside of uh, like Le Mans prototypes. 
um, you know, in the last few years. But it was really eye-opening when I watched the uh, McLaren documentary and you realize that, like, just mounting these things poses really, like, unique engineering challenges to get them, like, working and interfacing correctly with all the parts of the car. And then within that power unit, you basically have, like, multiple different systems which all have to be functioning perfectly and if one of them breaks the equilibrium that keeps that power unit humming along is completely out of whack like it can't survive without all the systems basically functioning somebody's gonna somebody's gonna draw the short straw yeah totally yeah. there's like there's two differences kind of between now and then one is the reliability factor now is that the that they're building towards is crazy because you know uh, not only can they like the first of all they, they're only allowed a certain amount of engines every year anyway so that, that they're really trying to make sure those things work forever and then the other thing is that you, they didn't care so so much before because they just give you another car like if you crashed in the race and the race restarted they give you another car if you crashed in qualifying give you another car that's not uh that's not so much the case anymore um so there's that and then the other aspect of it is just how computerized they are as well like the digital element to it creates binary problems where analog problems were before sometimes cars just don't fucking work you know ricardo's car turns off whereas before perhaps you know obviously it's depends on what the specifics but perhaps it was a you know a a non sort of digital system then maybe a part of the it runs less good but it doesn't break down immediately and you sort of if you take that sort of concept and apply it to all of the different elements of the car that are working in tandem with each other um you you get into that scenario where like sometimes it just you know engine turns off and Ricardo has to pull over and get out of the car. It's crazy. Uh, I, I would like to point out uh, this from another email from uh, Allert. Um, have you guys forgotten about Verstappen's horrible sequence of DNFs yeah. in the previous season? Not all that different from what Danny Rick is experiencing right now. Totally. I was just thinking about that a few days ago. Uh, well, Allert, um, during, according to Wikipedia, during the first 14 races of the 2017 season, Verstappen suffered seven retirements, four due to mechanical issues, and three due to first lap collisions in Spain, Austria, and Singapore. <laughs> so a little different, but yeah, I, I think going back to what we were saying about uh, putting engines in cars, uh, you know, Red Bull doesn't make the engine. Renault makes the engine. Um, and uh, there's there's something to be said for that because you know Renault knows how to treat it nice like um so yeah hopefully so goes the theory anyway yeah that's true or or they just they swapped engineers there's like there's one engineer that's not as good and they they swap it between each racer every time so next year is Verstappen's year again that's true yeah with Honda <laughs> Uh, all yeah. right, last email from Ed, um, and at the risk of uh, revealing just how little we know about Formula One cars. Hi, guys. Uh, just curious if you guys can give me some insight on how one F1 driver can get a better start than another. Sometimes the difference in starts is huge. What goes on in the cockpit to make that happen? Thanks, Ed. Well, I mean, God, like so, so much. Like track positions, one with the what side of the track you're on in terms of the the grip, and if it's got marbles on it, or if it's a little bit more worn in. Um, tire temperature when you're coming up. Uh, used to be fuel load made a bit of a difference, uh, but effectively at the start, it's like it's how like the easiest way of doing it is like if I feel like if you drive a manual transmission car, you just kind of know this. Like the 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 difference between upshifting at the right time with these cars coupled with how much uh, gas you're giving it and how much grip you're getting is like the key 
thing. I think looking at Hamilton's uh, start in America is a good sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, canary in the coal mine or, or example rather of of just how you know a little bit of wheel spin, a little bit of lack of grip, just while you're making your way up through those mid gears, um, can compound and make it worse. You know, by the time you get to the end of the straight, you're a second behind everyone or half a second behind everyone else. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, like a lot of a lot of sports cars these days have like launch control modes, right? And Formula One used to have launch control. And the entire point of that is to computerize and automate a really complicated and uh, like fine-grained interaction between the amount of power going through the uh, th- through the through the wheels and traction. And you like when that was automated, when there was traction control, like basically it was you just waited for the lights to go out, you mashed the pedal, and the computer is basically like cutting power, like. You know, your your foot is on the floor. The computer is dictating how much power is actually getting to the wheels, right? It is actually basically managing the acceleration. And like a road car. Yeah. Hmm. Um, they got rid of that in F1. And so now that's pretty much, I think, all down to feel and touch. And that's why it's become this... Um, some drivers have it, some don't. And there's just always the potential for you just you just screw up. Um now I think I think there's even more to it than that. Like there I think there are aspects to like launching these cars that it's even more involved than like letting out the clutch and dropping like dropping into first gear and letting out the clutch. But that part I don't know because like literally I think that is something that you you actually need to know what it is to drive these things. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm still not even clear on what the the bite point is. I know that on their uh, the, the, what do you call it? The, the, the outlap to get around to the grid. What is that called? Formation lap? Formation lap. Yeah. Uh, they are, they are setting the bite point. Uh, mm. and I think that probably has to do with like where the clutch comes in. Um, and you can like, you have to do that as the car is moving. And so that's what they do on the formation lap. And then that has a bearing on the start itself, but I don't actually know technically what that means. And um, I think they change a lot of that stuff once they get in. Like they change anything they're allowed to change within the car because there's some stuff that the engineers are able to do, but there's a lot of it that the drivers have to do. So on that first lap, sometimes when they're actually on the, the straight part, because at least they, they can sort of like automate it, they're flicking away on their their screen. Kind of the way you like, you know, sometimes like if you're using like a like a remote control and you're not looking at the TV, you kind of know which buttons you're, you're supposed to do. Like they're not mm-hmm. looking at the OSD. They're like actually just automatically doing a lot of that sort of stuff, um, which is crazy. I think it's fun when you see them in like uh, on. I think it's usually like free practice days where they're at the end of the pit lane and they practice their starts because mm-hmm. you know they don't get a lot of opportunities to do it. Um, yeah, hope that hope that illuminates a little bit for you, Ed. Um, you can also hit us up on Twitter. We are uh, at Shift F One Podcast uh, on there. Um, I am at Drew Scanlon. Danny is at Danny O'Dwyer, and Rob is Rob Zachney. Is that right? Mm-hmm. We're nothing uh, if not consistent. <laughs> it's just easier. Uh, so yeah, thanks for everyone who wrote in and said hey around the internet. Uh, but now it is time to see what other racing is happening this weekend around the world. So what was the th- what was the section I wanted to give, make Rob do every week? It was like watching uh, the Rob Kubica watch. Any 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 Kibitza news yet? Is he? Do you know where he is? Or Uh, no movement? Still in the hunt. Okay. Uh, We don't know where he'll land. Uh, Any team that wants to pick him up, uh, I think, 
will find itself launched into the competitive tiers of Formula One. Uh, yeah. Really, it's just an arbitrage opportunity there for the taking. Uh, so that's that's my take on Kubica Watch. Uh, we we will continue uh, watching the end of the silly season. Awesome. And if you don't see him, I guess, in F1, there's a very good chance that you might see him racing around the world in other racing disciplines. <laughs> nice. Nice. We still don't have confirmation on that second Williams seat. So right. could be could be Robbie G. Uh, also, I saw that... Apparently, George Russell, uh, who has the first seat next season, um, or has the, the first confirmed seat, uh, sealed the deal with a PowerPoint presentation about why they should, why he should drive Jesus for Williams. Jesus Christ! So, okay. man after my own heart. Yeah. Uh, Low expectations. <laughs> forgiveness. <laughs> Did he file a Jira ticket to do that? <laughs> uh, everyone except the Asana invite. Uh, let's see. Friday, we got Camping World Truck in a playoff race uh, at the ISM Raceway. Yep. Uh, in Avondale, Arizona. Avondale. Uh, uh, sure. For the Lucas Oil 150. Uh, the NHRA, sponsored by Mellow Yellow, uh, is uh, racing at Pomona in uh Pomona, California, for the mm. Auto Club Finals of the NHRA. Super GT is at uh, Twin Ring Motegi in the Tochigi it's prefecture. prefecture. Great prefecture. Mm-hmm. Great vintage. <laughs> Rob, shaking his head. Rob shaking his head. <laughs> I, lo- I love this carefully tended bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got NASCAR, fellas. Oh, yeah. Also at the ISM Speedway in, what did you, Avondale? Avondale? Which prefecture is that in? Avondale. It's the Arizona prefecture of the (laughs) USA. It's also the playoffs. The, I guess the, uh, not the final, the semifinals. Okay. Semifinals. Uh, Yeah. Welcome. We're in October. Also known as the Can-Am 500. Can-Am. Great airline. You can you can Canadian <laughs> yep Maple Leaf there's also F1 uh, first practice starts November 9th on Friday uh, at 5am Pacific time followed by second practice at 9am third practice is November 10th Saturday at 6am Pacific time followed by qualifying on Saturday at 9am and the race fellas the Brazilian Grand Prix starts at 9.10am on Sunday November 11th uh, as always, you can find our show notes at f1.cool. Until next time, I'm Drew Scanlon. That's Danny O'Dwyer and Rob Zachney. If you'd like to support Danny and I, we are both on Patreon. Uh, he at patreon.com slash noclip. I am at patreon.com slash clothmap. You can catch Rob at his day job at waypoint.vice.com. Anything else, Danny? No. Interlagos. What do you think, Rob? Good final sector. Looking forward to it. Agreed. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next time. Yeah.